Well, for the sake of time, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, from whom all good things do come, grant to us, thy humble servants, that by thy holy inspiration we may think those things that be right, and by thy merciful guiding may perform the same. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. All right, so we're in James chapter 3, and I'm not even going to comment on how quickly I think this is going to go, because we all know how that usually winds up. So we're just going to get started, okay? So let's just get started. Who wants to start us off with James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12? My brethren, let that many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire. A word of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, here olive, bear olives? <coughs> or a grapevine bear figs. Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. Okay. So, um, the first part on your sheet there, for James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, taming the tongue. Verse 1, uh, we have look at verse 1 where it says, will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, you can see Hebrews 13, 17, um, and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3 for additional information on the high position of a Christian teacher. Uh, to whom much is given, much will be expected. Those who teach others and then commit the same errors will be chastened more severely. I will say, though, that he's being more specific here than just teachers, um, and so is, so is Hebrews 13, 17, and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, because what Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, 
as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. He's talking about pastors there, right? And then if you look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, he's talking about the qualifications of the overseer. And the overseer is um, a pastor. So he says, you know, if uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of of the overseer, he decide, he desires a noble task. Uh, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And it goes on from there. I mean, it, it's connected all together as the qualifications of the overseer in Greek. Uh, it's it's um, episkopos, which is where we get the episcopate or the episcopacy. Basically, it just means a bishop. I mean, in, in the early church, though, a bishop was just like a pastor of a local congregation, church, right? And so in that sense, I'm the bishop of Fredericksburg, so kiss the ring. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But no, seriously, like... In the Missouri Synod, we do not have an episcopacy, so um, as far as authority goes, the district presidents are kind of like bishops, but we pastors, we have authority over a certain congregation in a certain sense to where a district president can't come into a certain congregation and say, you must do things in a certain way. We can actually say, well, what does our pastor have to say, and what does the congregation have to say along with the pastor, and so on and so forth, right? I say all that to say that, you know, verse 1 in James 3, I mentioned this, was, was it last time I mentioned that it can be seen as a pastoral letter that he's writing to other pastors primarily, and then everything else can also be generally applied to everybody else? You know, this is good stuff for all Christians to know, but for pastors to set the tone when he says, my brothers, there's the thought behind it that he's possibly talking to other pastors that are in the office having to do all the things that pastors do and preach it. And so here in chapter three, it would make sense to tame the tongue, that a pastor would have to tame his tongue and not curse people, but bless them, right? Um, and to set that example for the people. And one thing I will say is that in our translations, typically you see it says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. But in the Greek, that you is not there. In the Greek, it's very strictly means not many should become teachers, my brothers. Right? I'm not quite sure exactly why they insert the you, not many of you should be brothers, when it's not, I think, I think that's an interpretive twist, or not a twist, not, I don't, I don't want to say like they're twisting God's word or something like that, but that's an interpretive take on the grammar that James is using here, but um, in the strictest sense, it seems like he's just saying, not many should become teachers, my brothers, okay, so he's talking primarily about pastors, um, because that's 
the primary, that's one of the primary tasks of a pastor is to teach the faith, right? And anybody else that would teach in the church, be that a layman, right? They fall under the authority of the pastor in terms of what they're teaching, right? I mean, a pastor shouldn't just find somebody in the church and say, all right, it's your turn to teach Sunday school. Now just go ahead and try, give your best shot, right? Uh, a pastor needs to be able to say, let's, let's, you know, take a look at curriculum. Let's see what's doctrinally sound and go from there, right? I think, what is it? I've, I've heard that in the past at different churches people have been to, if you wanted to teach Sunday school, you had to come to the meetings every week and get your stuff to teach. And also you had to buy a copy of the uh, Kretzmann commentary. So you had deeper study than, than, um, than somebody else, right? Because if you're teaching these things, you need to be one who understands a little bit more than, than, than everybody else, right? So, but the buck stops with the pastor. Yeah, he is uh, the overseer of the congregation on the spiritual sense. On the spiritual side of things, so um, our sheet here is being fairly broad, but if you read those passages from Hebrews and First Timothy, he's talking about pastors primarily, right? And then teachers by extension. Any questions about that? I'm trying to tame my tongue here, give you all enough time to respond with things. But one thing I will add before we go into the discussion portion, portion is that when he says, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And he says, we, right, James is a pastor. And he's saying, so we who teach, the pastors or the deacons who are also ordained, um, you know, they would teach as well. They were in the office of uh, the pastor. But this puts the pastoral office within the context of the judgment on the last day, right? So the warning is connected to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, where um, he says, oh, I should have this queued up already. Matthew 5, 19, um, where he says, uh, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So it's one of those things like you relax one little bit of the teaching, either law or gospel, you're going to be judged for that as a pastor, as the overseer. Right? So I'm going to have to give an account someday for the doctrine that I've, teached, that I've taught. Teached. My goodness. Well, good thing I won't be judged on grammar. Um, I'll be judging the doctrine that I've taught, whether it was, you know, um, right or, you know, pure, true or false, right? So um, it's one of those things that it's not a light thing to be a pastor. It's not something that, what else, uh, James also says that a new convert should not be a pastor, lest he uh, fall under the same condemnation as the devil, right? Because he just gets puffed up, yeah? Um, so we have guidelines and things about holding people back. And Paul even says, do not be hasty with the laying on of hands. 
Right? Don't just ordain someone just because you need someone to fill that position. Got to be thorough and you can take your time because the church has eternity. You don't need to rush these things. Right? Any thoughts about that? Any questions before we go on to the discuss portion? I was a teacher of Sunday school back in Pflugerville. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we had co-teachers. We'd like take turns every week or whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in my sidekick or my uh, co-teacher. Sidekick. I like that better. <laughs> yeah. Good. Anyway, I think she decided not to do it for years. So we we were looking for teachers. Mm -hmm. And there was a new member of our congregation just came over from the Catholic Church. And he said, oh, I'll teach. We were butting heads all year long. Right. That was not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, when you're coming in from a different tradition and background, different doctrine, yeah, it's best to hold off maybe until they teach something. Be a part of the congregation first, right? Learn the doctrine first. Yeah. Because Roman Catholics have a different idea about things, right? Yeah. Yeah, I really wish other denominations paid a little bit more attention to who they, not even denominations, but like churches that don't belong to denominations. Yeah, sure. Uh, I heard from an atheist living in town. He had a, a run-in with a pastor at one of the churches in town that non-denominational. And this pastor basically like trespassed on his land and started yelling to his face, you know, cussing him out and etc. Et the pastor did? The pastor. <laughs> and first of all, that's wrong on so many different levels. But second of all, like that's the example that this atheist now has of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. And he's going to think all pastors are like that. Yeah. And Paul specifically says that he should not be quarrelsome, right? Um, and peaceable and, and gentle and all these things, right? Patient, long-suffering. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, the, the, the Lutheran Church, at least the Missouri Synod, has a, I think, very good track record of being very thorough with how we train our pastors. Um, and also, uh, we have, they're not, I don't, I don't think you can find in the Bible exactly where you say, you know, well, where does it say you have to go do the interview with the district president before you can even go to the seminary? And it's like, well, that's not in the Bible, but it's a good, it's a wise policy to say they should be examined because sometimes guys want to go to the seminary and become pastors for the wrong reasons. And when you have some checks and balances within the church, that helps safeguard at least most of the time. Not everybody gets through that should get. I mean, some guys get through that probably shouldn't. Uh, but we have a fairly rigorous process by which a man becomes a pastor within the Missouri Synod at least when they go to the seminary. Um, now we have different routes as far as SMP, specific ministry pastors and stuff like that, that I'm, I don't, I'm not really keen on. I don't really care for on some level. I, I don't know. It's just personally, it's like, if you don't want to, if you want to be a pastor, but you won't make the commitment to take your family and move to the seminary to be trained in person by your professors and, 
you know, be in that community for so many years learning and just absorbing all the things you can learn that's not just in a book or whatever. If you're not willing to make that commitment, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I kind of question, it's like, do you really want to be a pastor called by a congregation? There is something to be said for a special ministry pastor, though, on some level, because he only stays in that one congregation. The only way that he can get called to a different congregation is if he completes his Master of Divinity and, and then he can get called to go somewhere else. If, but he has to put the work through and he actually has to go to the seminary for that. So maybe that's a good route. I don't know. It's not for me necessarily to decide, but it's for us as a church to decide. You have a lot of people, and I'll stop after this, promise. You have a lot of people who say, we have a shortage of pastors. We need to get more guys in there, and we need to get them in any way we can. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Not anyway. Lower the standard. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a lower standard. I mean, I, I know some guys that are special ministry pastors, the SMPs or whatever, and, and not all of them are bad guys. Some of them are pretty solid, and they're doing it for the right reasons, and they want to learn more and, you know, all these good things. Um if they lift that requirement, though, and say you can be a special ministry pastor and basically get an online degree to be a pastor, and then you can go wherever you want after that, and you go, I don't think that's right. I think that's pretty wrong. Um, we have these checks and balances in place for the good of the church because to whom much is given, much will be expected. Right? Do not do these things lightly. And I'll stop there because that that also gets into church politics and whatnot, which we're not really talking about today. Well, you got to say teachers nowadays, you know, they can't get anybody. Their thought is, well, we just lower the standards. You don't even need a teaching education or accreditation anymore. We'll just uh, stick you in there and start teaching. Right. Yeah. It's (laughs) lowering standards doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not what you want to do. Yeah. All right. Well, let's 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 push forward a little bit here. Uh, so the discuss portion, getting into the issue about uh, the tongue, right? So if you keep your tongue in check, what are you also able to do? Able to bridle or control your whole body. Mm-hmm. If you control your tongue, you can easier and better control your desires and actions. Yeah. Do y'all think that that's True? Can y'all see how that can be applicable? I mean, how how is that applicable? Well, the easiest thing to do in response to an altercation is to, say, pop off mm. somebody. And usually words come before actions. And so yeah. if you can stop the words, then the actions usually don't follow suit or don't happen. Right, or there's a, a reduced possibility of, yeah, things escalating into physical altercations if you're thinking of that. Um, so yeah, if you can keep your tongue in check, you're also able to keep your whole body in check. Um, and this is especially true for pastors um, because, not, not to get off too far into the analogy or whatever, this is true for everybody, Watch what you say, right? Because Christians have words, right? That's that's how we fight our battles, is with the Word of God. Uh, the world has all kinds of material 
wealth and uh, weapons and powers and things like that, but Christians have the word. Um, and, and that's how we, that's, that's how we fight, you know, that's how we contend, I'll rather say. And like St. Paul says, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against, uh, you know, principalities and, and, and spirits and, and, you know, the forces of the air and things like that, right? That we fight a spiritual battle and the sword of the spirit is the word of God, right? So we have words and by the word of God, our whole body is kept in check as well. So, I mean, it's all connected. It's all connected. Um, any other thoughts about that? Keeping your tongue in check and what you're also able to do? Well, I was totally off the wall here, I guess. But No, it's fine. Go ahead. It's discussion. It's good. You have a better chance when you stand trial later. You have the right to remain silent. That's, that's, that's not a bad rule. <laughs> not a bad guide. I was actually about to ask that. I, I assume t- keeping the tongue in check also plays into speaking when you should speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, bridle your tongue because it's like a horse, right? A horse isn't a horse isn't just good for keeping it still, right? You want the horse to actually work or carry a load or whatever you need it to do, and that bridle helps to direct in the way that it should go, right? Um, we'll get into this in a minute too, as well as when we get to the three pictures uh, to describe the power of the tongue. So we'll get into the proper uses of the tongue or the way we conceive in a positive light as opposed to just prohibitory. Um, But for now, if you keep your tongue bridled, you're able to keep your whole body bridled. And I think the the image of the bit for the horse is a pretty pretty good analogy. Um, uh, Yeah, so any other thoughts about that? But we will touch on when it's appropriate to use your tongue in a certain way, when you need to speak in a certain way. Um, Anything else? Any other thoughts? Bridling my tongue. Okay, so uh, why do you think James brings up the matter of teaching, urging people to think twice before they strive to teach others? As a teacher, they must be above and beyond reproach. They must provide a Christian example. They will be held to a higher standard. In our church, at least, I'm sure a lot of other churches have the same practice. To be a deacon or elder, you you have to meet certain criteria. And um, I think it was in that Hebrews 13, 17, the Timothy 1 through 3, those things, which has been, I don't say altered, but kind of applied to today's time. Um, and so you want people who are above and beyond reproach in positions of leadership or teaching mm-hmm. um, otherwise you have hypocrisy for starters and then if they're trying to teach God's word and they're not following God's word then that undermines anything they're trying to teach to their students or congregation yeah yeah um, teachers are not immune you know pastors are not immune from the temptations to say certain things they shouldn't say Right, they 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 fall under the same temptation of lust uh, for foolish and coarse speech, 
And so, yeah, you have to be above reproach in what you say and what you do, especially as a pastor, um, because otherwise you get to that situation where that pastor was acting in an unbecoming way, even for a Christian, but especially for a pastor. And you can cause, I mean, what is it that you should also be above reproach so that the unbelievers would speak well of you, right? Live in um, the honorable way that would keep people from having anything to say against you, right? Conduct of your life matters, yeah? Especially how you talk and what you talk about. Um, so sometimes, pa you know, pastors or teachers are tempted to speak just to hear themselves talk or to receive honor from the students or to have a forum for spouting their own opinions, right? And, and so, sometimes I will give my opinion about some things, but it's never separated from at least an extrapolation from what Scripture has to say about it. And, mo and some, I try not to at least. <laughs> and if it is my opinion, I'll say, that's my opinion, right? You're not going to find that in Scripture, but that's my opinion. And, uh, you know, that's what I would call a wise thing to do or say or whatever. And wisdom is, is, is um, in the realm of discernment and everything like that. So with uh, wisdom, you're not always going to find chapter and verse. So sometimes you have to use scripture and your God-given reason to try and to, to discern what the best thing to do is, you know, in a given manner or a given uh, situation. So, but... Teachers must control their tongues, speaking only what God's word says and speaking to God's glory. And, but I think that's a little, also a little too restrictive because sometimes, like I said, people can say, well, where does, where does God's word say what? Uh, let's just say, what is it? Where does it say that in the Bible that to, you know, because I've gotten this before, right? Where does it say in the Bible that, you know, uh, two gay men can't get married or two gay women can't get married? It doesn't say that in the Bible that they can't get married, does it? And I say, well, Jesus says and he echoes, you know, Genesis that a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh, so Jesus never talks about gay marriage explicitly, but he does say what marriage is, right? So we have to understand that uh, God's, God's word, it needs to be understood with wisdom and discernment for given certain problems because Satan works really hard on getting into the cracks and finding ways in all the gray areas in which he can really get someone to think about whether or not God really said something, right? So teachers also have to be apt to pivot or to point out how, yes, this doesn't say it explicitly, but it is heavily implied. Actually, it's mandated. Marriage is only between a man and a woman. Therefore, gay marriage is prohibited, right? It's forbid. And elsewhere, it talks about homosexuality and things like that. You can also say the same thing about transgenderism, but you go, I mean, it says in the Bible, God made them male and female. And for you to say that you're not, that's calling God a liar. It never says anything specifically about transgenderism, but you can extrapolate from the word of God, you know, that transgenderism is, you know, a sin against God's creation, right? 
So I just want to throw that out there because sometimes we want to be very literal or hyper literal about the word of God. And sometimes we have to say we have to use wisdom with these things. And we're not speaking against God's word, but we are in line with the doctrine. Okay. I think I made my point. Hopefully I made my point. (laughs) Any questions? thoughts okay how about let's get on to the uh, pictures of the power of the tongue so James uses three pictures in verses three through six to describe the power of the tongue what are they and what point does James make by using each one to start with the horse's bit. Sure. Which we covered earlier. Um, the bit turns, the large animal dictates where it goes. A bit can also rein in a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, just comparing it to the size of the tongue. Yep. Um, and to, just to add on before mm-hmm. you go on, a horse bit, not the most comfortable thing for yeah. a horse. Right depending on which one you use and how you use it, it can actually be painful to the rest of the body. It takes training, right? You have to bit train a horse. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and like you said, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes some horses, because of their temperament, they need a, a stricter bit yeah. to, to rein them in, literally, because they, they need to feel the pain so that they know how to be corrected. And then you can ease off and become a little bit lighter, right? Depending, and you can switch them out, right? So that's, that's well put. Um, and something I don't think most people know about unless you've been around horses, that's for sure. Um, anything else about the bit? What's the next picture then? Ships turned by a rudder. Mm-hmm. Giant ships, their sails are pulling, pulling it to, to move, but as far as the direction it goes, it's guided by a tiny little rudder, by comparison of the ship at least, right? Small but mighty. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a small part of the body, the tongue is, but it boasts of great power and has the ability to control the whole body. Um, any, and what's, what's the other picture that he used? That James uses. Uh, a spark yeah. is like a spark. Yeah, so it's a fire. Yeah. Your words, uh, this is what I wrote under sparks, is that the, your words often go where you do not intend. Mm. And um, the result often quickly grows beyond your control. Mm. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things where, well, okay, so we have three pictures here. We have the bit, and we have the rudder of a ship, and then we have a spark, or a flame, right, too, because he goes on and saying, you know, um, yeah, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great, a fo- how, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Um, 
believer, so, so we've said how there's a positive aspect for a bit, right? It's not just to stop a horse, but it's to lead and to, you know, um, what? To lead, to direct, to encourage on some level. The rudder is the same thing. It steers, right? Even through storms or even against the wind, the rudder mm-hmm. can steer ship. That's right. And you can sail to your destination or you can get shipwrecked on the rocks, right? And the same thing with a horse. You know, you can uh, ride the horse right, you know, right off a cliff. It's kind of funny to think about because most of the time the horse won't let you. <laughs> right? But uh, but you can you can you can have a horse do something that'll wind up breaking its leg for sure uh, if, if you're not careful if you're reckless with it. But when we look at this image of the spark or the fire, that's not entirely negative. Okay, it's not entirely negative, uh, and, and and I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll put forth this understanding. Um, at least within the realm of preaching, like a pastor, right? And maybe even one-to-one correspondence between a Christian and someone who doesn't believe, right? That the tongue can preach the law and set on fire in a purifying sense this other person, Right? John the Baptist did this all the time. He preached about how uh, the Messiah was coming and you prepare the way of the Lord. He's on his way. Uh, The axe is laid to the root of the tree. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will gather up the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right? And that's good. Right? And then also he says what, um, that I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? So in that sense, in Matthew's gospel, fire is, a, is, fire is connected to the idea of hell in the sense that it convicts the unbeliever, okay? So... That's why I said it's kind of a narrow usage there where um, the fire is not always bad. Uh, The fire sometimes needs to happen to burn away the bad things and purify what is good. But in James here, though, Mm -hmm. I don't see it saying anything good about fire. It comes from hell. Mm -hmm. It's just defiled the whole body. sets on fire the course of nature. So in this case, pertaining to the tongue... Is there anything in James he's saying that's good about the fire of the tongue? Well, he doesn't, again, he doesn't say it explicitly. Okay. But I don't think you can necessarily, you know, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Maybe that's mighty things. And maybe there's room for interpretation there. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness, that's one side. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I mean, there's something to be said for, what is it? Setting on fire the entire, what is it, wheel of birth or course of life. I mean, it it may be a little bit of a leap, but I don't think that you can necessarily say 
that all fire is necessarily bad mm-hmm. in general. Maybe I'm maybe I'm putting too much into there, um, but I, I don't think that if if a bit or if a bridle has a negative and a positive sense, and a rudder has a positive and a negative sense, by just sheer maybe inference, the fire can be seen as beneficial in some sense. Um, but I mean, if you think about it, it says set on fire by hell or Gehenna, maybe you can read into that and just bear with me here, fire and brimstone preaching. How is someone supposed to feel the fire of hell on this side of life if they're not warned of it so that they don't experience it in the next life? The short amount of agony that you may feel from uncomfortable preaching the law could set you on a course of saving your life for eternity, right? But he does go on further, and we're going to get into this further, you know, that, that the tongue is restless. No one can tame the tongue completely. And we bless our Lord and Father, and we curse those who are made in the image of God, right? So again, there's the positive and the negative side of things. And if this is primarily pastors, I mean, when they're preaching, we're not supposed to be up there condemning the people unnecessarily, right? When when a pastor preaches, he should be preaching the law in its strictest sense and the gospel in its sweetest sense and knowing exactly when to do one or the other given the circumstances and the frame and all these other things. So if you think it's a bit of a stretch that fire is seen in a positive light, uh, that's fair. That's fine. I mean, we're just kind of engaging in some discussion here. But I can I can see on some level, in a very narrow sense, I'll, I'll just put it that way. Maybe it's a little more comfortable for you. In a very narrow sense, preaching hell to somebody may wind up saving them from hell itself. Okay. Um, and, and, and chew on that for a little bit. <laughs> any thoughts? Any, any questions? I don't know, it usually just turns people off, but that's your own decision. Uh, law? Law preaching? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Thankfully, we're getting back to an understanding of a proper place of the law within preaching. For a long time, I, I grew up not hearing a whole lot of like guidance for my life in preaching. Um, and, and you're hearing more and more elsewhere and things like that. It's like, well, we should hear about what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And yeah, that's going to convict you. But as a Christian, it's also going to encourage you on some level. At, at least it should. Um, I think the, what was it, one, I, I won't say who it was, but I mean, it was weeks ago, weeks ago, before, before Easter, I was preaching and mentioned something about, you know, how homosexuality is a sin and cohabitation is a sin. And, I uh, found out that somebody left the service cause they were so upset and I go, Ooh. Oh, Oh, <laughs> I was like. 
on one hand, I was like, oh, I hope I didn't upset them too bad. But then I said, well, I mean, they're getting upset about something that's true. And if I can clarify it, I will. I don't want to unduly burden somebody. But if that's something they're struggling with and they need to hear that it's a sin because nobody else is telling them, at least I'm telling them. And if they're going to get upset, I mean, then that's their sinful flesh rebelling against God's word. So, I mean, on some level, you just have to cast the seed and let God take care of the rest, right? Um, sadly, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to hear it. They don't want to. But that's why it's important to watch your tongue and speak things when they need to be spoken and hold your tongue when it needs to be held, right? So, and no one's perfect at this. We see that in James here. Any other thoughts, Audrey? Uh, I can... I agree that it, the way it applies to the pastor, but I also have used it sure. in teaching a group of women. Yeah. Because it's very important for us to realize the importance or the dangers of using that tongue. That's right. And how it can hurt people and within the family and the friends and everything. It can ruin so much. Yeah. A great fire can be set off because the tongue was used badly. Right, it can be devastating for oh, sure. Yes, and uh, in fact, there were times when uh, there was a time when I taught this because mm -hmm. it uh, yeah. to women. Yep. Because for women, it's so easy to say too much or <laughs> or anything, but. Often men will hold back a little bit, but often a woman will just blurt it out, whatever. And uh, thinking about those the three pictures, it, either one, the rud the ship, the rudder, that's just very generally turning and to the whole ship turns. Yeah, then a little thing can do it, but. Uh, when you get down to the fire, then that's that's instant, I think. Mm -hmm. You use that tongue and you can really burn somebody, some, mm -hmm. some relationship. Yeah. I, there's, there's, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I, this, is, this is not just for pastors. It is generally <laughs> for everybody. Yeah, of course yeah. it is. That we should all be watching our tongues. Christians, like I said, have the word. And if we bless with one side of our mouth and curse with the other mm -hmm. side you know that's it's one of those things you know can a salt was it um neither can a salt pond yield fresh water so it's like you don't get half of each the fresh gets contaminated by the salt right uh, it's, it's it doesn't work out that way so yeah you, you have to understand that it is something we have to watch ourselves in. and yeah women have a typically a harder time with the tongue than men some you know men may hold back depending on their temperament or whatever they may some really say some really harsh things um and women have a different way of using the tongue that can also get them in trouble too so you know gossip or whatever passive aggressiveness or whatever you know but yeah it's just all those different ways of knowing you got to watch yourself keep keep watch and i think even the psalms talk about that right Set a watch before my mouth, O Lord, and guard the door of my lips, right? Uh, let not my heart incline to any, to any wicked thing, right? 
Um, I forget which psalm that is. We sing it in evening prayer, but yeah. Um, it's, it's one of those things where uh, the mouth and the speech really does matter. It really matters. Absolutely. Right. Quick yeah. analogy on the, the rudder. Sure. Yeah. Uh, a loose rudder, it fits pretty well. Loose rudder, it's very hard to steer a ship with a loose rudder. <laughs> experience. Yeah. Because it just flops you know, this way, this way, this way. Um, so loose tongue makes it very hard to uh, keep on a straight line. And also, you know, a single thing, rudder is a nice, slow, gradual turn. If you pull a rudder the wrong way and you're going into the wind or away from the wind, you can swap a boat completely uh-huh. just by steering it wrong. So right. it's a mm-hmm. very good. Um, comparison to uh-huh. the tongue, the one arm move and you're underwater. Yeah. <laughs> too sharp. Too sharp to turn. Too fast. Yeah. Yep. Wind will blow you over. Mm-hmm. And if it's too loose though, then you cannot hold a straight line and it's it massive pain. You waver. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Man, God's word's great, isn't it? It's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about that next question? Uh, this side of heaven, what can a person never fully do? What's that? Be perfect. Yeah, be perfect, but but specifically. Tame what? their tongue. Yeah. Fully tame their tongue. Right, right. Fully tame your tongue. Uh, and, and I'm sure we have our instances of times we did not tame our tongues, right? Uh, we probably can say we've gotten upset while driving, right? Uh, uh, and said some things we shouldn't have said, uh, and, and not even, it's kind of amazing. Like how, how many of y'all have been in the car and you even, even if it's very soft, you mutter it under your breath and then you realize, Oh wow, that was horrible. What I just said. Right. And you don't even realize it until right after you said it, you go, wow, that's scary, (laughs) scary how quickly your tongue can run away from you. Right. But I mean, uh, have have y'all had some instances where y- your mouth got away from you a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's that? You don't have to share but, if you don't want to, but but the other side of that is to never saying anything. Yeah. And that ain't gonna get this. Bob it all up. Yeah. yeah, just 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 keep quiet. That, that won't do anybody any good if if they're going down the wrong path. Right. Yeah. Um, it's true. It's true. Well, so it's impossible to completely tame the tongue. Uh, maybe in the analogy of the fire, or at least, you know, it's one of these things. If you steer a horse the wrong way. Hopefully you have enough time to correct. And the same thing with a ship. And with a fire, with a spark, you know, hopefully you see it quick enough to stomp it out, right, and control it. Uh, but you can't always keep the spark from flying. You can't always, you know, go in the direction that you really should be going at all times. You're going to stray. That's not an excuse, uh, but it is something to say that we rely on God's grace for all the things we do and say, right? I think he allows us to, if we do set that fire with the tongue, uh, any time, if there is a fire, he allows us to walk away or run away from it. That's a possibility and we may have to back off. If you start something with the tongue, back off and 
I found you and stop and think about my motivation before I, for what the reason I said what I said and uh, <laughs> I've told this story before but it, it was the children with the family when there was some, something came up and I was very disturbed and I wanted to say do something I found it was better for me to go off by myself that's when I would go to the sink, find dirty dishes that needed to be washed, and I was busy. I, um, my, I think my children learned that you stay away from mother because she's working and washing dishes and leave her alone. Yeah. And, uh, but it gave me time to reflect and turn back. So that your tongue didn't run away from you, right? Yes. Yeah. And so that's maybe allowing um, to steer in a different direction. Yeah, the bridle or the rudder. The rudder. Is, um, get away from the rocks. Get away from the cliff. Yeah, absolutely. And if it looked like there was going to be a fire, then you'd have time to ask for forgiveness and turn. And Hopefully, go a different direction. Put the fire out. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. Well. On the next part for apply, um, in the final verses of this section, James strikes a contrast in how we and how we use our tongues. In one breath we praise God, and in the next breath we curse our fellow man. Think of one Sunday when you praised God in church and then went home and used your tongue to gossip or even curse another person. Has anybody ever done that? Of course y'all haven't done that. You're good Christians, right? <laughs> well, I wonder how you define gossip. I mean, gossip mm. can be a, a warning or an advice. I know when we first moved to where we're at out there, the neighbor told me, don't let your children hang around with so-and-so up the street because he's bad news. Yeah. Amy moves into my dad's place and the neighbor tells me that hey you gotta be careful the guys in the back alley are ex-cons mm -hmm. the stripes down the block does drug deals at midnight every every day wow I mean some of those things that's not gossip that's just a warning yeah well I, I would consider that you know something yeah. not to withhold well fair enough I mean what is it Luther talks about in the in the large catechism, when he's talking about the Eighth Commandment, you know, you should not bear false false testimony, right? Um, what does he say? He says uh, that... Uh, where is it? So Sixth Commandment. Sorry, he says something about how in the Eighth Commandment, you're up upholding someone's reputation, right? And God does not... the God does not want the reputation, the good name, and the upright character of our neighbor to be taken away or diminished, just as with his money and possessions. And so he goes on and on and he says um, that we must suffer slander and things like that. But then he says something about how uh, there, uh, what is it? Sorry, I, I really want to find this, where he says, here we go, here we go, here we go. Uh, 
So he says, basically, if someone has done something that you hear they've done, that's not public knowledge, it is your duty not to continue that on. That is gossip. That is slandering someone's good name. If you hear something is happening, go talk to them. Right? If you know them, go talk to them and say, hey, I've heard something's going on. I won't say from whom, but I hear that bad, bad things are happening. You're in some trouble, yada, yada, yada. Can I help you in any way? Or is this true? But then he says this. So he says, um, uh, let everyone use his tongue and make it serve for the best of, for the best of, of, everyone else to gov- to cover up his neighbor's sins, uh, to excuse them, conceal and garnish them with his own reputation. Then he says, it is especially excellent and um, noble virtue for someone always to explain things for his neighbor's advantage and to put the best construction on all he may hear about his neighbor if it is not notoriously wicked. Right? That's a key distinction there. If someone is an ex-con, uh, and, 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 or you know, someone's notoriously a drug dealer, yeah, it, it, I think it's okay to warn someone, hey, you just want to stay away from that guy. Stay away from this part of town at this time of night, right? Or whatever. Um, uh, or if, you know, someone is like a registered sex offender, you say, kids, do not talk. If that, if that guy talks to you, you let me know and, and we'll take care of it or whatever, right? You have, and so if someone is notoriously wicked, then, and, and it's well, well known, the reputation, uh, it's not something that's private or private matter, you know, whatever that might be. There's a lot of problems that can come from gossip. But like you said, if you're warning someone that's notoriously well, you know. bad... That's not a bad thing necessarily. The Jack Steele and the uh, the fights at Bucks, where that that all came out of the grand jury I served on one time. I didn't know anything about it until then either. Yeah, yeah. And I would think that that's a re- fairly reliable source. What's that? The grand jury, the policeman. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be right. So I mean, you have to understand that that gossip. Well, and, and gossip can even be very pernicious. It can be very sneaky. Because sometimes some people, I've heard of this, I've never, I don't think I've seen it here, fairly certain I haven't, but I've known at least of a warning that was given to me to be very careful with prayer requests. You see what I'm saying? Be very careful with prayer requests and what you're asking people to pray for. Because sometimes, sadly, and this is very sad. Sometimes it can be used for gossip, right? You know, so-and-so has, so-and-so's going through a divorce because they were having an affair. Let's pray for them, right? Or whatever, you know? So you got to be very careful about about even those things because it's, man, it's tricky. It it can be like the tongue is a tricky thing, right? It's so true. Yeah, yeah. So, or just say like, you know, someone is having family problems and leave it at that or whatever, Pray for them. God knows their trouble and he'll know how to handle it or something. But sometimes people get very specific with their prayer requests for somebody else. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, yeah, just remember that the unchecked sin of one 
member can soon destroy the whole body. So we got to be careful. Yeah, got to be careful. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've heard it before. I don't know who said it or where I heard it. It says, listen to understand and not to respond or reply. Have you ever heard that? It's something saying, like that, yeah. So if you listen to understand somebody, then you're not listening to try to say something back. Mm. And it usually works out better. Yeah, you're not... You're not just thinking about when you're going to speak. So yeah, I've heard something like that before. Sorry, was that too quick response? No, no. <laughs> no, I was, I was wondering if you knew where that came from. Because I've heard it a few times. And I don't know if it's like an inspirational quote or if it's actually out of, you know, someone who knew what they're talking about. Uh, it makes sense mm-hmm. on its face. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. It sounds like some good counsel. Okay. So, yeah. I, I don't know where it comes from. Um... So, why is it important that, this is the last question on this first page, why is it important that those who teach the Word also spend much time in the Word before they speak? Uh, read 2 Timothy 2.15 and discuss the essential requirement for a teacher of the Word. So, 2 Timothy 2.15, you just want to turn there real quick. It's a few books before James, right? Um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, St. Paul writes to, to, to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Or in some translations it says rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay. Um, What's an essential requirement for a teacher of the Word? Know the Word. Know the Word? I have, I must tell you about what has, to take it exactly as the writer intended to me, not deviating right or left, and to diligently study it and be careful to accept it and teach it as it is, which, I don't know if that helps or not, but... Yeah. Correctly handling the word, knowing this is what it says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is when you should apply it, maybe this is when you should apply a different part of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we as Lutherans, or at least I've, I've heard this, this is, um, this is, this is like kind of a proof text for the Lutheran understanding of the proper distinction between law and gospel on some level, that um, you have to rightly divide or rightly handle the word of truth in that very generally there is, you know, the law that, the law that uh, is the curve, mirror, and guide, and then there's the gospel that saves, right? So if someone is coming to you saying, um, I don't know. Or if 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 you know someone is committing a grave sin, right, like adultery, and you go to them and you say you need to stop committing adultery, stop it right now and repent and confess your sin, be forgiven, and they say, oh, it's no big deal because I love her. You go, okay, um, you're gonna burn in hell if you don't stop this right now, right? You you don't you don't say, oh well, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. Then everything's gonna be okay. You tell them the law, 
and you say, no, you stop right now because your soul's in jeopardy right now because you think this grave sin is no big deal. And you can apply that to anything. You can apply it to gossip. You can apply that to stealing, coveting, idolatry, whatever. Someone even not coming to church often enough or at all because they're breaking uh, the third commandment, right? Um, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Uh, and even the second and the first, right? So it's like you, if you say to someone, you need to come to church, and they go, I don't need to come to church to worship God. And you go, yes, you do. You must come to church. Uh, yeah, you do have to come to church. And to think that you don't is putting yourself in danger. You don't, you don't just go to somebody and say, you need to come to church. And they go, I don't need to go to church. And you go, oh, well, okay, you know, Jesus forgives you, so it's okay. Right? <laughs> You, you, you lay on the law so that someone would be convicted. But when they're convicted, you don't keep laying the law on them, right? You, when, when someone says, oh, Lord, have mercy. I have sinned, and I don't want to die and go to hell forever. What do I do? Well, you, uh, you stop committing adultery. It's like, I know. What else? Uh, be forgiven, right? Know that Christ has died for you and for your sin, right? And, and bear fruits in keeping with repentance, that sort of thing, right? Um, but, but from the place of forgiveness and grace. So that's very generally rightly handling, the, rightly handling the word of truth in humility because Luther had the saying, he said, whoever can perfectly apply law and gospel deserves the doctor's cap. Right? He deserves to be called a doctor of theology. And that basically is to say that no one gets that cap, if that's the requirement. Because everyone stumbles and struggles to properly apply the word at some point in time. And we need God's grace in it. But that's all part of humility. Uh, you know, pastors, teachers, they, they especially need to use law and gospel you know, well. Convicting those who need to be convicted. What is it? Um, uh, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Right? That's a nice way to think about it. Um, those, those who are comfortable in their sin, they need to be afflicted by the law so that they would humble themselves and ask for God's uh, forgiveness. But those who are afflicted by their sin must be comforted with the gospel. That is God's will. Yeah. So any questions about that? Thoughts? All right. Well, we're doing pretty good on time. Let's continue on with James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who would like to read verses 13 through 18 for us? I got it. Okay. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Okay. There's no look portion for this. Um, pretty straightforward. So we'll just kind of go through it, right? 
So what does James mean by the wise and the understanding um, in verse 13? Look at the following verses and read how wisdom is described in other places of Scripture. So first of all, what, is, what does James mean by wise and understanding on its face right there in verse 13? What do you think before we get into these other ones? Not a fool. That's stupid. (laughs) Someone trained, someone taught, catechized, right? Ideally in wisdom. (laughs) So they're not foolish. Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah. So wise and understanding. We're going to see what this this is all about, though. Wisdom. Okay. Um, Let me see. We've got one, two, three, four. Hey, we got four people here. Uh, How about let's go around. Uh, So, James, if you can get 2 Timothy 3.15... Amy, if you'll get 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 30. Uh, Alan, if you want to get Ephesians 1, 17. And then Audrey, if you'll get Ephesians 5, 15. We'll just go around and just have a discussion on all these different texts. Um, and the, the way that wisdom is described in these verses and passages. So 1 Timothy, oh sorry, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 15. What do you got there, James? And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So how is wisdom described there? The knowledge of salvation. Yes. So wisdom is knowing how to be saved. And that is the knowledge of salvation in Christ Jesus. Um It's not just the knowledge that causes the demons to shudder. It is the knowledge that saves. Um, Any other thoughts about that? 2 Timothy 3.15? Pretty straightforward. Okay. How about 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 30? Oh, you got the long one. Yeah, it's long. Oh, it's one of the best passages. It's great. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the, wis- for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think not of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 
It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Okay. So, how is wisdom described here? Christ. Extensively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, extensively. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Jesus Christ and him. What the world considers foolish because they don't perceive it spiritually. Right. And, and it's specifically what about Jesus? What specifically do they preach about Christ? Crucified. Yeah. Christ crucified. Uh, the unbelievers look at that and they say, why do you believe in a guy who couldn't save himself? You think he's going to save you? Right? It's foolishness. It's it's nuts. Um, that was one of the that was that was one of the challenges of the early church because the pagans they had all these you know gods that were mighty and powerful and all of a sudden you've got you've got a god that died that died basically and you go whoop de doo you have you have a god who died how is that how is that good. And so when you, uh, one of my professors at the seminary, I think, wrote something about how if you read Luke's gospel, he, you know, Luke being, being a Gentile um, has a way of framing, uh, framing the narrative um, to show the triumph of the cross. You know, and so does John, too, right? The exaltation of Jesus upon the cross. So it's, it's one of those things, it's like, the cross is foolishness to those who just don't get it. They just don't get it. But wisdom, true wisdom, according to God, is knowing that God saved the world through the crucifixion of Christ. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts about that? Yeah, other gods are like the Hercules type, and our God is a lamb. Yeah. What is how does how does Revelation put it? A lamb that looks as if it was slain but is alive. Yeah, and it's funny because you see these nice pictures of of you know the lamb with the little the little cut here and the blood is pouring out. But it's like, what does a lamb look like when it's been slaughtered? It's it's bloody. It's red, right? And so it's just like that's I think more of a closer picture. But also the lamb in Revelation has you know. A bunch of eyes and a bunch of horns. It's kind of a weird looking lamb. Uh, <laughs> you know, in Old Testament, when they sacrificed a lamb, you had to go in front of the priest, and the priest would take his knife. And yeah. I told my wife one day, yeah, that's what I need to do with my grandkids. Oh, man. <laughs> no, they'd never come back again. Yeah, right. <sighs> and, then, and then take that blood and sprinkle it on them. Yeah, yeah sprinkle yeah, it. Sprinkle it on them. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right, so we see that in 1 Corinthians 1, we see that wisdom is knowing that God saved the world through the cross of Christ. Um, what about Ephesians 1.17? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, so how is wisdom described here? The knowledge of God knowledge of him yeah um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him 
Um, in some sense, that's also, you know, he's speaking to people who are already Christians, right? So in some sense, he's asking for the Spirit to abound even more, right? To deepen their knowledge of Christ for salvation, right? Uh, it's kind of like, what is it? Um, the What is it? Uh, in Hebrews, when he says, you know, you... You need it, or Hebrews talks about it. Paul Paul mentions it. You know that you need to have spiritual milk, but eventually you need to start eating the meat and potatoes, as we would say, right? You need to grow. You need you know you, you got to grow some teeth. You need it's good to grow in your faith, right? To deepen the knowledge. Uh, so wisdom, in that sense, is growing and knowing Christ more. Uh, that God would, God would continue to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, you know, increasingly. Um, not that we can ever be perfect in our understanding of it, but that we can actually grow. And Paul talks about that, that, that elsewhere in Ephesians, right? You'd grow into mature, into mature manhood in your faith. You know? um, how about Ephesians 5.15? Audrey, you have Ephesians yeah. five fifteen. Yes. Sure. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Yeah. And the uh, thirteen and fourteen, we're talking about a light, the light of Christ, guiding you and waking you up. Mm -hmm. And now, see that you walk, because now you can see the way. Yeah. And, and it says on there, I think also Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 15 and following as well, right? So there's the light of Christ following the way so that you would look carefully, right? And walk not as foolish, but as wise. And even more that making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And goes on from there about getting drunk and debauchery and things like that, right? Uh, be filled with the Spirit, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, so wisdom is knowing how to walk, right? Knowing how to live, knowing how to serve from the place of having been served in salvation, yeah? So, all, so basically, wisdom is knowing how to find salvation, that's in Christ. Wisdom is knowing that God has saved the world through the cross of Jesus. Wisdom is increasing in the knowledge of salvation through Christ, deepening it, right? Or being led deeper into it by the Spirit. And then following, and, and, and then wisdom is knowing how to serve the Lord in all the ways that he has called you to do so. That's, any other thoughts about Wisdom from these verses, these passages? So, when James says, um, who is wise and understanding among you? Basically, who is wise into salvation? Who understands salvation? 
who is led who is being led deeper into their understanding of salvation through Christ and who is wise in knowing how to serve the Lord in the ways they have been called right that's all part of this for sure um, why next question I guess why does wisdom make a person humble what do you think I'm reminded of a Confucius quote that says true wisdom is knowing the extent of your ignorance Hmm. And uh, knowing knowing how much you don't know is definitely humbling. Mm-hmm. I don't know who said it, but it's it was my Confucius or a guy who copied him. It says, "The more I know, the more I realize. The more I know, the more I know I don't know." Yeah, I think there was uh, Socrates when okay. the uh, it's a part of legend, I guess, where the Someone asked the Oracle of Delphi, who's the wisest man that ever lived? And the Oracle said, Socrates. And that person went to Socrates and said, why would the Oracle of Delphi say that you're the wisest man? And he says, um, what did he say? Yeah, he said something along those lines where he said, um, uh, oh my goodness, what did he say? Drawn a blank here, but it's something along those lines of, of, of um, the only thing, what is it? The only thing that I know is how much I don't know, something like that, right? I'm butchering that completely. Uh, I used to know it. It's okay. Well, I'm humbled. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, a truly wise person knows themselves for what they are and what they aren't. Right? They know themselves. Um, you know your limitations. Oh, that's right. Socrates said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. Um, but yeah, if you know your limitations, if you know you don't know everything, that's humbling. Um, if you know that true wisdom comes from God and not from yourself, that's humbling too. Right? I mean... Um, you read the Proverbs and, and that's kind of a humbling experience as well. You go, I mean, how many times have you read the Proverbs and you feel convicted because you go, oh, I did not obey that proverb. That was, that's not good, right? Um, go down the list. It's humbling because it shows you how far you do fall, how sinful you really are. Um, a wise person you know, knows, you know, a truly wise person, you know, Socrates wasn't this wise, I would say. He wasn't wise enough to know that he's, you know, saved by grace through faith alone, by Christ alone, right? Um, so, uh, you know, a wise person knows that he's no better than any of his fellow Christians, but also that unbelievers can be saved, right? Just as they are, just, just as Christians are, right? Um, you live humbly under the Lord, trusting that the Lord's wisdom is best. Um, what is it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So uh, to fear God above all things, that's wisdom. That's the root, root cause. And that's humbling. 
Um, any other thoughts about that? Yeah, Proverbs yeah. 1 7. That was my answer for question five. And my comment for question five. You already stole it from to me. me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. So yeah. I, uh, I use it all the time. So. One of mine, too. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, sorry, I stole your thunder there, James. Uh, yeah, one five. Yeah, yeah. One seven. So sorry, one one seven. Oh, that was for question five. Proverbs one yeah. seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we see that next question in verses fourteen and fifteen. James describes another kind of wisdom. What is that? And why do you think he calls it wisdom? I, just a bit of a push here. I think you should put wisdom in quotes here, right? Uh, scare, scare quotes. So why does he call these things wisdom? Well, I, I called it ego. Mm-hmm. And people think it's wisdom. The people who are self-assured are wise in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody? I wrote self-seeking. Okay. It's from the devil. All right. Yeah, so we have, what, three different kinds of wisdom, quote-unquote wisdom, right? There's uh, the earthly wisdom, unspiritual wisdom, and demonic wisdom, right? Uh, I think you're right, the the, the self-serving, right? Um what else did y'all say? That's uh, the ego. ego. The ego. The egotistical wisdom that it's all about what you think is right and uh, you know, you're wise in your own eyes kind of thing. Okay. So uh, he says there's, uh, what is it? This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Um yeah, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Um, so yeah, boasting. Uh, when he speaks of the earthly wisdom, um, let me see here. What is this? Okay, so he speaks of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Fools boast about how great they are out of envy for others and out and about all the you know ladders they have to climb in their lives, selfishly stepping on others in the process. You know, it's ego, selfish ambition, pride, all these things. But it is earthly because, you know, you look at the world and you say, it's dog eat dog, so I'm going to be vicious. An earthly understanding uh, is the same thing as a spiritual understanding, or no, the unspiritual understanding. You look at the natural world and your spiritual understanding takes all of its cues from that. Um, So James calls this wisdom because that's what it seems to be, right? You look at the world and you say, that's the way the world works, therefore that's how I'm going to live my life. And if that's the way the world works, that's the way that God works. Yeah. See, if you think along the lines of utilitarianism and greater good, that's very wise in the world's eyes, but mm. it's oftentimes evil. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like that separates, or that would be a good example of this other type of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what is it? Everyone's, what is it? So utilitarianism is a kind of philosophy, right? Um, things are only good when they're useful in this very basic it's sense. Of ends justify means. I mean, nowadays people are saying abortion is a smart choice because you can get on with your career, make yourself mm-hmm. stable, and you know, having kids not a smart choice. So it's wise in the world's eyes to not have a kid. Right, and then that's demonic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so in the end, it all leads back to the influence of the demons. It's what I think it's what James is getting at here. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's it's short-sighted in seeing only the benefit in this world uh, and forfeiting the benefits of the world to come. You know, uh, but the world sees that as wisdom, um, and the devil convinces people that those ways truly are wise. It's all these different ways that he can get people to believe in questioning God's word, saying, did God really say that, you know, like we talked about last time, it's like anybody, any time you talk about what God wants for your life, there are people out there who will say, who really show themselves to be in league with the devil by saying, oh, you know, God, God sounds like a real party pooper. He was just trying to rain on your parade. He doesn't really want what's best for you. And you go, yeah, he does. He doesn't want me to feel pain and suffering because of my sin, right? He wants me to steer clear of the main problems that a lot of people fall into, you know, uh, foolishly, right? He wants me to be wise and not be like the fool that digs a pit and falls into it himself, right? He wants me to avoid these things, and that's good. Um, And if I start saying that that's evil, then I've condemned myself, yeah? Um, because woe to you that call good evil and, and what is evil good. It's, it's, it's a perversion. It's an inversion of God's will. It's, it's demonic. So, yeah. Any other thoughts about that? Yeah. I, I got distracted here a little bit. It's okay. Um, I'm. My Bible has a lot of notes that I wrote in it. Sure. Kind of in the past. Yes. Verse 15, the wisdom descends not from above, earthly, sensual, devilish. And I wrote uh, in the note, there are four kinds of wisdom from above, from the earth, sensual, and devilish. And a reference to 1 John 4, 6. Mm-hmm. We are of God... He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of evil. So by knowing God, having his wisdom, we can tell the difference. We can sort it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's from a long time ago. No, that's, that's, that's very helpful. That's very good. Yeah, um... It kind of reminds me also of uh, Colossians 3, um, where uh, it's kind of in line with that, too. Colossians 3, where um, St. Paul says, keep your mind, uh, what is it? I read it tonight for Vespers. Um, uh, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? So yeah, it's the, it's the exact same thing. There's four kinds of wis- wisdom, right? There's only one true kind of wisdom, right? The others are counterfeit. The other three are counterfeit. They're foolishness in the end. Which kind of goes to show that foolishness is, I don't know, more abundant in its variations. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, it's more abundant in its variations, and wisdom, true wisdom, is singular, and it's singularly minded, right? And if, and that's, that's the other thing, um, what is it? The wisdom of the world, it kind of reminds me of this too, the wisdom of the world seems to have all kinds of different avenues, but when you look at the Word of God, Jesus says, um, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path that leads to righteousness, right? Uh, and the world, like this, says that the earthly, the fleshly, or the unspiritual, and then the demonic wisdom. And there's all kinds of different ways to go to hell, but there's only one kind of way to go to heaven, right? Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, I mean, when you look at that, it means that we're supposed to be singularly minded as Christians, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the world doesn't like that. <laughs> the world hates that, right? The world, the world wants, us to te- wants to tell us, you know, um, you need to be more tolerant. Uh, <laughs> you need to be more tolerant. Um, although I think it was Pastor Wolfmiller that really made me think about this at one point in time. He said... He said, we don't ever, like, it's kind of funny. Historically, you only talk about the things you tolerate are in relation to the things you hate. Right? You don't have to tolerate the things you love. Right? But you're, but, but you're supposed to tolerate the things you hate. And so on some level, that's to say the world calls for tolerance because it wants acceptance for all the things that are contrary to God's will. Uh, but we are to be singular, singularly minded in uh, calling these things out in love, in true love, and having our eyes on Christ and on the wisdom that comes from above. So yeah, it all, all comes together very nicely. Um, but yeah, so Audrey, you said that the way you know is because of God's word, right? Is that what she said? Yeah, to test to test the spirits according to the word, right? Um, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, what's that next question? What is one reason that the devil's wisdom is foolishness? I said because it leads to death. All right. Yeah. Anything else? You will find disorder in every evil practice from. His wisdom, and those aren't things to want to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. You get nothing but chaos. You get nothing but wickedness. 
Um, that doesn't sound like wisdom, right? Again, it sounds like that that fool in Proverbs that digs a pit and falls into it. Right? They're just leading to their own destruction. Any other thoughts about that? The devil's wisdom as foolishness? Yeah, you know, going back one question, you had mentioned that you know, the world wants us to be tolerant. Mm-hmm. I think we're past that stage. The world wants us to be inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. No it's, longer are we to put up with it. They want uh, to get in your house now. To celebrate it. Yeah. It's to celebrate the things of the world. It's yeah. even worse than that now. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's getting worse. It is. So, yeah, you're right. It's, it's definitely getting worse. They want us to celebrate it. They want us to laud it and praise it and all those things. It's quickly becoming a time where it's like, I, I, don't, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're fast approaching a time to where if you're a Christian in the world and the world is so bad, but the world is not actively against you, I wonder if you really should think about whether or not you're living the Christian life. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Jesus says, when the world hates you, know know that it first hated me. Right? But if the world, if you're a Christian and the world doesn't hate you, maybe you should start asking yourself, why doesn't the world hate me? If, If I'm doing all that I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian or living the way I'm supposed to be living, as a natural course of being a Christian, I don't think we're quite there yet in the extreme, but it's one of those things of like, if we live as Christians live, we shouldn't be surprised about being targets uh, of, of the world's hatred. Audrey, you were going to say? <laughs> Remember a little story. Okay. A young man went to, uh, to work in the uh, summertime at a lumbering camp, mm. and when he came back, they asked, somebody asked him, uh, "Well, you're a Christian," did, and they were they they were not they were not Christian, and it was so bad. How did you get along? He said, I didn't ever let them know that I was a Christian. Mm. Yeah, right. So, is that why we don't have, have opposition because we didn't? Yeah. We don't yeah. make it known. Maybe. That could be. I think that's worth examining ourselves over. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if the world is that, if this world is as bad as we say that it is, and yet we are getting out of it unscathed, <laughs> say, well, not necessarily how can we seek to be persecuted, but are we doing all that we can do as Christians to make the witness and the confession known to the world? so that God would be glorified. And uh, it's, worth cons- it's, it's worth thinking about. It's worth examining ourselves over, right? Um, anyways, uh, let's go on to that next question, the last question under, under the discuss portion. True wisdom comes from God. What is that wisdom like? Uh, choose one characteristic you would, like t- you would like more of and discuss this with the class. 
pray that the Lord gives you more of that characteristic of true wisdom. Now, don't cheat and say, I want them all. Can you just pick one that you think would really benefit you on some level? Uh, And if you want to share, share that. But so true wisdom comes from God. What is that wisdom like? I picked everything out of, well, not for me, but the answer for that, everything in verse 17, Mm -hmm. which I think is all the answer for question six. So I'm kind of confused. I guess it's okay. Yeah, all right. Okay. Um, It's okay. It's okay to be redundant. (laughs) (laughs) The the pure, peaceful, gentle, um, full of mercy, submissive, impartial, and sincere, which is a lot of the fruits of the Spirit, or some Mm -hmm. overlap there. Yes. So is there any one of those that you would particularly ask God to help you with? Peace and patience, or patience. Okay. Patience is a big one, for sure. Or as it's also said, long-suffering, right? Anybody else? The list that I came up with was fear of the Lord, knowledge of Scripture, discernment, contentment, trust, and seeking a heart like God's. Mm-hmm. And the last one is the one that I picked, seeking a heart like God's. Okay. That's good. Anybody else want to share? It's always kind of tough to talk about the things that you wish you were more like, because then people say, oh, you want to be sincere? Have you not been sincere with me before? <laughs> right? It's, 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 it can be a little tricky. But, I mean, really, like, who, it, it, it would be good to be sincere with each other, right? And sincerely know that you know, we love each other and that we care about each other. Uh, to know that you know, the wisdom from above is first pure. I mean, uh, I think that's probably a good place to start for most of us is the purity of the wisdom that comes from God and striving for that, right? Not being adulterated with the world's wisdom, maybe as a starting point. But having a heart like God is very good. Patience is very good. We're all going to have our own places where we're going to need to work on uh, our own struggles with our own personalities and temperaments about uh, where we fall short, right? So it helps to think about these things and to encourage each other in these things. Absolutely. Any other thoughts about that? Wisdom and where you'd like to improve? Well, uh, how about number six, under apply? Some people are not happy unless they are in control of others, whatever the situation might be. Uh, Read verse 17 again. Uh, What traits will manifest themselves in the Christian who has been given the true wisdom that comes from above? So you already said it. Let's say it again. We can be redundant, like I said. Uh, What is it? Pure, right? Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. 
uh, and maybe it would help to think about again how those play out in our own lives. And they're going to look different, right? Those are very general things, and for a good reason. It's going to look different for all of us. Um, and then the last question, peacemakers bring about a harvest of righteousness. What does Jesus say about peacemakers in Matthew 5, verse 9? Blessed are they. For they shall be called sons of God. That's right. For they shall be called sons of God. Um, so peacemakers, at least in this world, um, may seem to be fighting a losing battle most of the time. Right? Um, they also may give up their own rights to leadership or to having their way. But Jesus says that they will be called the sons of God um, by living out the peacemaking activities of their father. Um, any other thoughts about that? The harvest of righteousness and peacemakers. Well, even if they're not just resolving disputes or making peace or keeping the peace, bringing peace to other people, uh, someone's in turmoil or having trouble and mm -hmm. doing what you can to bring them spiritual or emotional peace, mm -hmm. that's a big, big thing. Yeah. It's a gift if you can do that for people. Absolutely. What is it that uh, Paul says that the comfort that we have received, we then comfort others, right? Uh, I forget where he says that, but um, I know he says it. I know it's in there. Um, yeah, that I, on some level being a peacemaker is harder than being a peacekeeper. Right? Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, and uh, yeah, so knowing that the peace comes from Christ, sharing that peace with others in the midst of sadness and sorrow and affliction and strife and temptation and all these things, right? It's, it's being the imitator of God in the peace that he provides. Any other thoughts about that? Peacemakers and being sons of God? Oh, here, I didn't think about this until I read it in the study. It mm -hmm. does not say blessed are the pacifists. Right. It's a distinction between the two, peacemakers and pacifists. Yep. Not having a stand is not an option. Right. Um, God, uh, what is it? God blesses and brings about justice, right? And we should fight injustice uh, in a very real sense. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, like social justice stuff, but, or racial justice stuff. Uh, a lot of those things, things seem to be contrived very heavily. Uh, but I'm talking about real justice when some, when, when the poor is being afflicted, like we talked about last time, uh, when the rich are getting away with, with stealing or murder or whatever, um, God does not smile on that. And, um, yeah, blessed are the peacemakers and <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean be pacifist. Absolutely. Pacifistic, I guess you could say. All right. Any other thoughts about James chapter three? This one was pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, earlier I was trying, I thought 
Chicago. They're the verse I gotta find. Mm. And it's in James 1. Yeah. Wherefore, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And it's slow to wrath. The idea that we need to listen and before we talk, mm -hmm. while we blur it out, whatever it is. And if we don't, if we're not careful, it can lead to anger and strife. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Very good. Very good. Thank you for that. Thank you for all y'all's good discussion, good input, insight, and all these things. Uh, last questions? Before we close, all of chapter four next week. Yep, all of chapter four, and then after that, chapter five, and we're done. Uh, yep. So yeah, chapter four next week, and we'll do that. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and close then with uh, with the Lord's prayer. So taught by our Lord and trusting His promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.